back with another full 15 minutes of all the late news at 11 o'clock. Coming up, Gene Shepard. checking accounts. The ego, you know. But one guy, one fantastic guy, who's got a great sense of rightness of things, he sends his alimony checks to his former wife showing a photograph of him kissing his new wife. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, listen, I, I uh, don't know quite how to bring this up, but uh, this is a very important uh, date. And, uh... It's a very important date. Uh, do any of you uh, know anything about Alfred Alfred Packer? It's not Alfred, it's Alfred. You know about Alfred, huh? Well, he's a big man. And I uh, one time celebrated this date in uh, the University of Colorado, where he has, uh, you know, there's a room there. You know, every school has a, has like a, uh, a, a, uh, like a lunchroom or a coffee shop and so forth, and they give them names like the, uh, you know, like the Charles B. Watanabe Memorial Coffee Shop, stuff like that, see? Well, there is a place in there, the Alfred Packer or Alfred Packer Memorial Grill. And I'm sitting in there eating eating a hamburger in the Alfred Packer Memorial Grill one. That's playing the University of Colorado, you know, in Boulder, which is incidentally a, a really great town, a really interesting town. And I'm sitting there eating a hamburger, and I said, say, who is this Alfred Packer? Because you don't know who Alfred Packer is? I said, uh, no, now that you mention that, of course I don't know who a lot of people are. And uh, the guy says, well, everybody should know. Anyone who's interested in American history should know about Alfred Packer. And so give me a little romantic music. I'd like to salute Alfred tonight. It's Alfred, not Alfred. It's Alfred. He was very uh, touchy about the way his name was pronounced. Alfred Packer. In case you're curious who Alfred was, uh, Alfred was the only man ever in the history of American jurisprudence. A unique case. Romantic person. Alfred was. Alfred fought in the Civil War, among other things. He was a pioneer in the Great West. <laughs> 
in an earlier phase of his life. Yes, he went into the great Rocky Mountains back in the days when there were only mountain men out there. They weren't even, uh, well, James Arness had not even discovered it. Uh, you know, it was long before screen gems discovered the West. And it was just a lot of woods out there. And Alfred Parker was on, and he was on hand. Alfred Packer, I'm sorry. And uh, he's, a, he's a historical character, and one that uh, should be recognized. He's the only American ever convicted in all of American jurisprudence on the charge of cannibalism. <laughs> what, a, what a great uh, TV sequence that would make, you know? <laughs> Bring it down there, you know? What happened, of course, briefly, is, is the story is this. I mean, of course, it's a fantastic story, but briefly, the story, everybody knows about the cannibalism, don't you? You know what happened, don't you? You know actually what happened in the scene? Well, these guys arrived out there. You know, they, they, they went out to, to the west. They were going to be prospectors. You know, there's a big gold strike and everything going on out there, see? It's been a long time ago, see? And uh, about 100 years thereabouts. And uh, he set out from, from Utah someplace with, a, with about 20 or 30 guys, and they were going to go up into the Rockies somewhere up there, and they were going to prospect for gold. Well, they got out there. Uh, in the base of the Rockies, and it turns out they were having an unbelievable winter. So uh, this uh, Indian or somebody came along and says, forget it, there's a fantastic winter going on up there. You guys better turn back. You're going to be in trouble. So uh, most of the party turned back, except six guys, Alfred, Packer, and five other types. They plunged down ahead like true, uh, true uh, heroic pioneers. Well, they got caught up to the you-know-what in unbelievable snow. I mean, it was really a bad winter. I mean, bad. And uh, there they are up there, up in the woods. And uh, he, the only thing he could do, I mean, it's a survival of the fittest. From that point on, they had nothing to eat except pine needles. And that doesn't do very well. After a while, you get tired of that pretty quick. A few pine cones, roots, maybe a rock or two, and that's it. Fantastic snow. And uh, it's... Well, <laughs> how can I put it? But more, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, more of, uh, properly. He just simply ate up the other five guys, and uh, he survived very well. Well, when he, <laughs> when he finally, you know how they caught him, he showed up. Uh, he, he showed up in a town in Colorado here in the summertime, and his pockets was, was loaded with dough uh, that he could not explain where he got. It's what he did. He not only ate up his friends, he also took all the dough they had with him. You see, he figured, well, you know, it's not going to do them any good. Now that they've been made into a pot roast, you know, what what point is it going to have all those $20 bills around? See, so he just uh, took all the money and he went to Colorado. Well, then when he got to Colorado, somebody nailed him on the fact that, uh, where'd you get all that dough? He says, well, you know, I picked it up here and there. You know, a guy does the best he can. And they got suspicious, and uh, people began to ask questions, and it turns out that uh, he admitted it. He, he just, uh, you know, just, well, what are you going to do? Of course, he denied murdering these guys. He claimed that he didn't murder them. He claimed that as they drop off one by one, he says, you know, what's he used to wasting all that, you know, all that, uh, all that nice pork chops and stuff there? So he just uh, laid into it. And uh, ultimately, he survived very well. Well, they convicted him on it, see? And, uh... He died in 1902, thereabouts, maintaining his innocence to that day, but at the same time not denying that he, uh, you know, he gobbled these guys up. Well, now, cannibalism, you know, has a, has a lot of connotations there. 
So uh, they, out at the University of Colorado in Boulder, they have the Alfred Packer Memorial Dining Room. And uh, every year they uh, celebrate the, the anniversary of, uh, of Alfred Packer's, uh, you know, first big banquet. That's what they really celebrate. <laughs> and you see, it came out. It came out in the trial later on when he actually started it, this, this uh, hectic career of cannibalism. So uh, he, you know, uh, he, his name survives, which is a lesson to all of us. You know, if you live a straight, narrow life, hardly your name ever survives. Most people who never did anything in their lives, you know, really, really, if you're really aiming for true immortality, friends, uh, honesty is not necessarily the best policy. Now, now let's, let's take of all the generals in the Civil War, or rather in the Revolutionary War, how many people uh, uh, remember, you know, there are dozens of them, you never hear of them, but you sure as hell hear of Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold is a famous general, do you agree? Okay. Now, there were a lot of guys that worked in garages in Indiana, you know, walked around, you know, walked around in garages out there and did little things like worked at the A&P. Are you aware that these are all the things that John Dillinger did before he really made his big strike? That's right. He still remains in folklore. There were a lot of guys that worked out in the West. You know, there were cops and stuff out in the West. But uh, you remember who? Billy the Kid. <laughs> so there's a lesson in that for all of us. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a fact about, about uh, immortality. Immortality does not necessarily go to the just. Uh, nor does it go to the righteous. Now, uh, is it, how many guys must have been alive at the time of Genghis Khan or uh, Attila the Hun? You know, guys that didn't uh, uh, sack and uh, pillage the neighboring uh, areas. But uh, I, I feel that uh, what's going on in there? There seems to be a lot of excitement. Is it, go is it all right? Okay, fine. All of a sudden, everybody ran around and there's a phone rang. But tell them we didn't order any pizza, will you, for God's sakes, you know? <laughs> But uh, I, I, uh, I've often felt that, that, uh, that the more infamous you are, I mean, the, the, the more evil you treat your fellow man, the more evilly, the more desperately you treat him, the more chance you have of making, of making immortality. Now, do you notice that the grill that they got out in Boulder, Colorado, does not celebrate the memory of any one of the five guys that got eaten up? All of whom were probably... <laughs> pretty straight guys. Who do they celebrate? Alfred Packer. Alfred Packer. Now, can you imagine the scene, though? Uh, they, they don't tell you what recipes he used. I mean, whether, whether you know, <laughs> did he, well, how did he, well, you just think he just broiled them? I mean, you know, you broiled them, a little, uh, little gravy, and, uh, you know, it, uh, no, he did not eat them raw. No, no, that's a fact. No, 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 no. Oh, no. He, he, in fact, that came up in the trial. You see, the, the thing that makes the trial fascinating is that, is that if you ever get a chance to go back and read the excerpts of the actual trial, the trial was pretty, pretty fascinating because they cross-examined Alfred on, uh, you know, just how he went about it. And he was very loath to tell them. They... they, they well, there's a there's a whole passage. In fact, I saw it at the University of Colorado. They've got they've got whole passages taken from the actual court proceedings, where the prosecutor said, "And then, Mr. Packer, uh, you uh, you did what when you found that your uh, that your friend uh, Josephus had passed on in the night due to the fact that he was uh, frozen 
and had died of starvation, you did what? There'd be a long pause, and it says, and in parentheses, it says, after pause, it would say, Packer says, I at him. So, well, now, wait just a moment, Mr. Packer. You say you at him. That is not enough for this court. How did you, how did you at him? It says, after long pause. Well, I at him. That's what I did. Mr. Packer, we need more information on that. And then, and then it says, uh, objection by the defense attorney. The <laughs> defense attorney. This is objection overruled. They don't even tell you what the objection was. Somebody got up and says, what difference does it make whether he broiled them or whether he put Tabasco sauce on them? He says he had them, right? That's enough. I object. It's objection overruled. And so the whole, the whole, uh, it would, wouldn't that make a fantastic TV show starring, uh, say, somebody like an early Perry Mason? The, the, the trial of Alfred Packer. Now, uh, <laughs> no, I'm serious. This, this is a very important thing. Uh, uh, now, that's not, that's not necessarily, he's not necessarily the only guy that ever actually indulged in cannibalism. He's the only one to be convicted of cannibalism, which is very different, very different process. Now, I, I'm not, uh, if, go ahead and get angry. I'm just talking about history. This is American history we're dealing with. But you know, it's a funny thing about that, that uh, business of, of uh, of the of the infamous, uh, I've had a uh, little experience of that myself. I can't remember. Just try to remember the kids that you knew in, in school. That's right. Which ones do you really remember? Do you remember the nice, quiet ones that didn't do anything, just got B pluses in class all the time? No, they have faded off into memory. One of my great memories is is <laughs> of Grover Dill. Now, uh, Grover Dill, of course, uh, uh, we shall use that name to, uh, to, uh, to guard the innocent uh, and uh, also protect the guilty, wherever they might be. But uh, Grover Dill and Al Farkas are the two most vivid memories I have of my very earliest days in grade school, and particularly Al Farkas. This is WOR New York. Speaking of the of the infamous, now I'm not I'm not recommending friends that you that you uh, take up a, a life of crime. What I am saying here, I'm I, I'm I'm uh, this. Let's say this is a metaphysical uh, discussion of the nature of immortality. And you see what happens is that ultimately, and this is part of that immortality thing. Ultimately, the bad guy slowly is converted. Until finally he becomes, in the myth, the good guy. Now you'll take, t I can give you num numerous cases, I can point out that Billy the Kid was not beloved in his day. <laughs> By any means. In fact, the sheriff who shot Billy the Kid was, uh, you know, was considered a big hero because he'd, he'd finally been the guy that got one of the great public enemies of the day. But have you noticed how, how uh, folk singers and and uh, various myth creators have, have uh, done their their uh, insidious work until today. He uh, uh, Billy the Kid is played by Paul Newman. He's a, he's a good guy, very sensitive, and I suspect that when the, you know they're coming out with a new version of uh, Dillinger, there's a new story, a new thing coming out. Look at Bonnie and Clyde, for God's sakes. Bonnie and Clyde are heroes, heroine. Uh, and, and why? Well, that's the myth. You see, myth-making is fascinating. And I remember, I remember Farkas. Before we go on with Farkas, man, talk about a legend. He is a legend even to this day among people in, in the whole areas of the, of the northern Indiana 
literal. And uh, before we get on to that uh, particular aspect of uh, American history, give me a little of that uh, cheap Portuguese music, please. Friends, for only 426 bucks, and that, ain't, that isn't that much these days, $426. That, uh, that's about, uh, I mean, you just back into your garage one day and pushing your trunk lid, and that's $426 worth of damage, just like that, right? <laughs> well, for $426, TAP will sell you two countries and throw in a few islands on the side, friend. TAP, the Intercontinental Airline of Portugal, has a two-week royal treatment tour of Lisbon, Funchal, Las Palmas, and Madrid. Oh, man, this is wild. And the price even includes round-trip economy airfare. They'll take you from Lisbon's uh, fantastic scene, and it is, believe me, Lisbon is one of the most European of all cities. I suspect that Lisbon is what most people think of when they think of Europe. It is it, man, the real thing. And uh, they'll take you to the jet-set atmosphere of the island of Funchal and Las Palmas. And uh, you can hang around and do the whole scene there. And that's a big scene, by the way. And the more you want, the more you get. Then they take you right out to uh, Madrid. And all this, by the way, includes airfare to all these different places. For $426, including places to stay and food and the whole bit. So you call your travel agent at... Call TAP, actually. That's quicker. Call TAP 421-8500 for complete details. $426. What more do you want? Two countries, two islands, man. A lot of chicks, the food, the scene. And uh, a little of that. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Take it out there. Thank you, Bill. That's enough. That's, uh, and I hope when you're over there, you try that uh, Portuguese wine. Good wine. And uh, one of the Portuguese wines we'd like to recommend is Costa do Sol. It's a good vintage rosé. And uh, I had it when I was over there in Portugal. This is a very popular wine over there. It's not too well known here in the States, but very popular in uh, Portugal. It's considered one of the better wines over there. As a matter of fact, it, you know, the irony of it all is, is, is when you... Many people do not really taste the real thing of various countries when they buy stuff here in this country. Do you know that, that often... Uh, not the best stuff is exported and that some of the best stuff is kept in the country itself, you know, for the people there. And uh, I'd like to recommend uh, Costa del Sol. It's a really excellent uh, rosé and one of the very big type sellers over in in, uh, in the Portugal itself. It's a good, good rosé and very light, clean, uh, elegantly soft rosé. And if you've never tasted uh, Portuguese rosé, you should really do it. By the way, this this is Costa do Sol. Costa do Sol. And you can also get it in great big bottles, not just those little dinky ones. Uh, Costa do Sol Vintage Rosé, imported by the Allens of M.S. Walker, Inc., Boston, Mass. And you can get it in any good liquor store. Costa do Sol. Well, let's see. We have Zip Kit with us tonight. And uh, what this really boils down to is this. that It's a kit, if you have any skin problems. Uh, it's a kit. comes with three proven medicines. It's produced by Dermacon. And the three medicines are Dermacon Skin Cleanser, which uh, you do just exactly what it says with it, uh, clean your skin, so on. They have a Dermacon Medicated Lotion. It's a, it's a complete system, you see. You use all three of these things in rotation. You use the Dermacon Medicated Lotion during the day. Uh, it helps soften your skin and so on. And then you use the Dermacon Medicated Cream at night. Put that on at night when you're going to bed to help heal and soothe while you sleep. And the Zip Kit contains no harsh peeling agents. It's gentle, round-the-clock care. So give it a try. Uh, they say uh, for, you can give it a try for 30 days, and it costs less than 25 cents a day to try it. It's a Zip Kit, Z-Z, 
Z-I-T-K-I-T, Zit Kit, by Dermacon. And you can buy the Dermacon Zit Kit at Genovese, Whalum, Mac, Drug Guild, and other leading pharmacies. That's the Dermacon Zit Kit. It's General Tire's original equipment tire sale on the glass-belted Jumbo 780. Oh, bring it up big, 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 big. Oh, blap. If you want a compact intermediate for a standard-sized car, you can get this long-mileage glass-belted tire for only $25.50 plus tax. And uh, all kinds of sizes and a distinctive white wall tire is only $3 more. So mount your glass belt at Jumbo 780 tires today. The sale ends Saturday, May 13th at the home of the big red General Tire G, your one-stop car care headquarters. All right, you uh, Chinese food cuckoos, have you tried the Great Shanghai? Let me tell you, if you haven't, you might have missed out on some of the most fantastic Chinese food in all of New York. Few, very few, and I, I'll tell you this absolutely straight from the shoulder, very few restaurants in New York have kitchens large enough to accommodate the number of chefs from all the different regions of China that they have in the Great Shanghai. They come from Cantonese, northeastern China, Setsuan, all over the whole area there, and you can have food from all these different areas of China in the Great Shanghai. Fantastic menu. You won't believe the menu. And I would like to suggest you try the Great Shanghai Sunday brunch. It is really great. They serve it from 11 to 4 Sunday. All you can eat for 275. It's a buffet. And children under four feet tall are a buck and a half. That's the Great Shanghai Broadway at 103rd, and there's an IRT station right there. The Great Shanghai Broadway at 103rd Street. It is good. But, uh, you know, I, the, the, <laughs> when I think of Alfred, and here's Alfred. He's got a, a room at the University of, of Colorado named after him. And he's a famous cannibal. Well, now, there, there's a lesson in that for all of us. Because, in fact, uh, I remember the talk about legends. Uh, every, every, I think this is a male thing. I think every kid grows up, if you're a male, you know, you're a male-type kid, that due to the fact that the male animal has certain striking characteristics that are different from the female animal, now, of course, even that statement today could be controversial. <laughs> be immediately going to get a lot of letters from people. Oh, no, that's not true. Well, uh, I can only say that, that, uh, that the history doesn't necessarily bear out your view, that there are some notable differences that have nothing to do with biology. Maybe they ultimately do. I don't know. But uh, there are notable differences between the male animal and the female animal. And, it, of course, it's all confused. There's a great, there's a great cloud of area where, where people are, are constantly delving into whether or not it's a cultural differences, whether they're taught this and whether this and that. But the fact remains, when all the clouds are somehow pushed aside, there are differences. Now, how they got that way is beyond the scope of this course. But you do concede there are differences. Do you concede that? You concede that, Jerry. Now, wait a minute. Uh, is, that, is that willingly you concede or grudgingly? You concede it willingly. How about you, Bill? You concede it willingly. Now, we're not discussing the obvious biological differences. Now, we'll go back to the original question. Do you accept the premise that there is a difference between females and males of the human species? Now, of course, the difference may be ultimately, obviously, is ultimately related to biological differences. You can't separate them, really. I suppose, in the end. But, uh, <laughs> no, you can't. 
But I'm just curious about Alfred now. Now, Alfred was male, see? I wonder whether or not uh, a female of the species would indulge in cannibalism. I'll just throw this out for a, for a, you know, for, for, for a discussion's sake. Let's let Gloria Steinem take that up. Uh, I'm just curious whether or not this is so. Now, I'm not making a pro-male statement when I say that, obviously. Because uh, here we, we know that Alfred uh, Packer did indulge in cannibalism, and he seemed to do it quite willingly. He didn't, uh, you know, he didn't seem to have much uh, squeamishness about it. Of course, uh, ultimately, I suppose when you're, when you're about to die, or you know you're about to die, I suspect that almost any of us would do almost anything. Did you concede that? And yet, yet uh, you know, cannibalism is, a, is still in our world today. And, you know, this is a subject that is very, very rarely discussed. But cannibalism is not dead in the world of 1972. In fact, uh, it's 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 often brushed under the uh, brushed under the uh, under the under the rug. But the fact is uh, is that cannibalism does exist in in quite a few countries in one form or another. And uh, there have been several UN investigations of it. And that it's just not given much publicity because it's not good publicity for the countries involved. I can assure you of that. I mean, especially when you're trying to get tourists to come there. But the, <laughs> the facts are that cannibalism is a going concern in many parts of the world. Now, we're going to carry it a little further. That do you, do you know that, that cannibalism is often a ritualistic thing? It's, it's, it's not a thing. Now, in certain tribal areas, certain areas, cannibalism is really just looked upon as, as food. It really it really is just food. They don't put any value judgment on it. And primarily, this is based on the fact that many tribes consider themselves human beings. They define the word human being by themselves. They say, we are human beings. And all the other people, like any other tribe, is not a human being at all. It's some kind of another species. So eating somebody from another tribe is not eating a human being. It's like, you know, eating an elk or uh, eating, a, a, you know, some kind of another species. They don't think of it in terms of eating a human being. So it's very hard to put a value judgment on that. That's why when you say that's a bad, you know, it's a bad thing they're doing. Uh, the question is, is it in their terms? You say, they, they, uh, they say, no, we're, we're just, you know, it's like rabbits or anything else. These, these are not human beings after all. You say, well, what is a human being? Well... He uses this word to describe his own tribe. You talking to him are not a human being. Uh, so that's a... Now, I, I personally ran into this, you know. Uh, maybe I should tell you about this. Uh, you know, this is all academic to, uh, to most of you, I'm sure. But, but about three years ago, for those of you who have never heard of this curious escapade that I got involved in, about three years ago, I... I I had a, a, an absolutely unparalleled opportunity. I mean, unparalleled to to uh, most observers' eyes. Although at, at the time it it, it uh, was a curiously unsettling experience, and it's, it has changed my view of things a great deal. I must admit that about three years ago, I got the chance through a series of uh, curious circumstances to spend a short time with a tribe of working headhunters in the upper Amazon 
regions way in the upper Amazon, in the headwaters of the Amazon, at the base of the Andes, in, a, in the, the far uh, wildernesses of Peru, in a, an area of Peru called the Montaña, which is to this day, it's one of the most inaccessible, one of the most dangerous, and certainly one of the most little, one of the most uh, little-known parts of the world left. It's really unexplored, large areas of it. And I spent uh, a few uh, interesting evenings in the company of a group of headhunters. Now, that, that, that can change your view of things because you suddenly realize a lot of things that you had only conjectured about at the time, you know, when beforehand, because most people tend to believe uh, that, that, that men generally want the same things out of life. You know, we, we, we tend to believe this is a liberal Western view, uh, that men want peace, for example. We tend to believe that. That's a, that's a great belief among us, that this is one of the things, because after all, this is, in essence, one of the great uh, tenors that runs through the Judaic Christian ethic is a, is peace, uh, a turn the other cheek, uh, humility, and all these various things which are and, and respect primarily for another person's life. That's that's an important concept that we have. In fact, it's it's the premise upon which most uh, people are basing their objection to the Vietnamese War. This is part of our whole concept of life, and yet this is not a a a a, a position that is taken by many many peoples of the world, that the respect for human life does not simply exist. That's like a little scary when you run into that, because you kind of think it's just a fact of life. You, you kind of, we, we grow up in it so much, you know, we live in it so much, that we tend to believe that it is, it is universal, that ultimately all men feel a twinge of, of a conscience when they kill another man. We just feel this is true. We never question that. We just accept the fact that this is true. Well, uh, when, you're, when you're in the presence of, of, of a man, now I was in the presence for some time of a man who was quite proud of the fact that, that he, had, he, was, he had become chief of this tribe due to the fact that he had killed 37 other uh, natives, I suppose you can call them, I don't even want to use Indians, really. He had killed 37 other people from other tribes. And this had made him an unqualified success in his world. And he was the chief. And the reason he had killed these, they were considered ultimate evil spirits and enemies of his tribe. They were not, they were not, uh, they were not considered human beings. He had killed, he had killed evil spirits, is what he had done. He had, he was considered like a man who had brought great good to his tribe because he had dealt with these things. And uh, they brought the heads back to prove it. So, uh, they, and they were all around the clearing where I was. Too, by the way, it was not just a matter of uh, of rumors. So I don't know whether many of you have had the chance to squat down on your haunches eating monkey meat uh, deep in the interior of Peru, with nothing but a black sky over you, and uh, off in the distance you can hear the faint murmur of a of a rushing river, which is about to become part of the great Amazon tributary system, ice cold water incidentally, and crystal clear and filled with, uh, or at least uh, laced with, not necessarily filled with, uh, innumerable types of unclassified, strange tropical diseases which uh, you can fall prey to without even knowing you're doing it. And I'm squatting down in this clearing, 
and eating monkey meat. Now, that's, that is an interesting experience. It, it'll, it'll change a, a lot of your viewpoints. It really will, and I, and I can't describe to you how it does it. Now, uh, one, of the, one of the interesting developments of our time today is that people have a romantic attitude towards the wilderness. Uh, romantic in that I suspect they think it's really basically safe. <laughs> Yeah, they, they well. It's it's like an offshoot of the movies, you know. Yeah, that that uh, that uh, it's hard for a, for a totally urban man, and almost all well, all of us really, in one way or another, today are urban men. Even if you live on a farm out in the wilds of Utah, you're still an urban man. You know, the cable comes in there. You watch Johnny Carson every night, and uh, it's very hard to comprehend the place where the foot of man has rarely touched, and when it has touched. It's generally been disastrous. It's very difficult to comprehend a place like this. And yet, to show you how romantic we are, most of you, I'm sure, would have a great desire to visit this place. That's romance. That's romantic. Uh, without any, any, any real idea or knowledge of, of what it entails. I, I remember lying in a bunk, and across the... Uh, across the this little tent across the tent from me in another bunk is a guy lying there and the two of us we're, we're just about on the edge of this scene and that uh, we are about to take off the next day in a helio courier now a helio courier this particular one is it's a float plane it's an stol float plane a stall plane which is designed to land exclusively on water it's the only conceivable place you can land in the montagna which consists of nothing but almost impenetrable jungle. I mean, jungle so deep and so heavy that uh, that from the air it looks like a vast, green, unbroken carpet. It, I mean, unbroken. And, and when you do see a slit in it, it is a river flowing, filled with crocodiles, filled with piranhas. And... Uh, the area around the river, of course, for miles and miles and miles, uncharted miles around that, is filled with one type or another of unfriendly tribe. And I mean genuinely unfriendly, not like our usual concept of the romantic Indian sitting high atop a hillside, played by Anthony Quinn. I'm talking about another scene. It's a, it's a curious feeling. And as you fly over this ground, as you fly over the, the area there, uh, the two of us are in this little airplane, and it's a, it's a small, single-engine airplane. It's the only kind they can use there because it has to take off in very tight, uh, very narrow rivers. The rivers that it takes off in, these are not huge rivers like the Amazon. Don't think in terms of the Amazon. This is a river that's narrower than, say, uh, 6th Avenue. And uh, getting in and out of a river like that that has nothing but bends in it, no straight areas, that's, that's nippy. I want to tell you this. You should have seen the takeoff we took, we, we pulled off, uh, going against the stream, and he took off going around the curve, the only, the only thing that we could do. And so we rocked the plane back and forth. We're sitting in the airplane. He says, now, let's rock. You know, we're rocking back and forth, and we, we're, we simply were not going to make it. We, you know, he, we, he says, obvious we were going to make it. That's a very interesting scene. And we had just arrived at the point of takeoff. The plane was up on the step about to go, and he just cut everything, and we just slewed around and slid sideways and the ricocheted off a sandbar. And he says, quick, out. So I hopped out. I grabbed a hold of a rope and uh, pulled, it, pulled it along the bank. And all the while, you see, you remember, I, we're in very, very alien country. 
He says, in quick. So I hopped up on the float back. At, see, all I was doing was trying to straighten the plane around because he had lost power. So he got the engine started. We started to go back upstream. And uh, we, we went upstream a, a couple of hundred yards, and he got it turned around. A very strong current. We got the thing turned around finally. And he says, we, well, all right, he says, uh, this time, he says, let's really rock it right from the start. He said, we'll get this thing up. So we're rocking this thing back and forth on its float. So you got full bore he's going. And finally, <laughs> we got this baby up. And he made a climbing left-hand turn, and we just barely eased her over these huge tropical trees which were a couple, oh, gee, they're tremendous. Uh, 150 feet high is, is uh, maybe an average. Figured out how many stories high that is, friend. That's a good 10 or 15 stories high. These three just climbed up over, we just barely, uh, just barely cleared them, and I'm sitting there sweating. And, uh, he's, he's, he's a little nervous, too. You know, his jaw is a little square. So we, we, finally, got, we finally got out, uh, out over the montagna, and we're flying at 8,000 feet. And uh, you can see gradually rolling hills. It's the foothills of the Andes. And off to your left, you can see the Andes just looming like, like an enormous uh, ghost in the sky. But this totally green country just extends for as far as you can conceive. Just unbelievable. It just goes on and on, unbroken. And so we got talking in the airplane. We're flying along at 8,000 feet. And I said, uh, I said, you know, just what happens if you go down here? He says, well, don't even talk about it. And I says, well, what does happen? He says, you don't get out, that's all. You just simply don't get out. He says, the chances of being found uh, dropping into this area here, of course, they don't have navigational aids like we have, so there's no way for them to track you on radar or anything. And he says, the chances of you being found in this area, he says, are almost mathematically impossible. In other words, it's so tiny percentage that the, that it simply doesn't exist. So we're just droning along at 8,000 feet, just hanging on that prop. That was a, the only thing that we've got. And once in a great while, we would drop down. He would, he would, uh, he's got the chart there, and we would drop down lower, lower and lower, until finally you would see a tiny clearing. You'd see a little wisp of smoke coming up. And we would just buzz over this area. Just, and this was a... This was a, a, a little tribal area, uh, Chapra, a little area they call it. It's, it's, it's an area, it's a compound where a family lives. They don't live in a tribe like our American Indians, a great big tribe. Their tribe is spread out over hundreds of miles, and it's divided into little families. One, maybe two, three males, and about five or six females, and a bunch of children, and that's it. So we just roar over the thing and go on. And he said that one of their aircraft, uh, there were two of these aircraft. He said one time one guy just came down. He said, the, his fellow pilot just laid her in. He just drifted over this area, and they hit him with arrows. He said he came down a little too low, and he said, man, they really peppered the aircraft. And he said when he got back, he says the thing looked like the bottom side of a porcupine. And uh, <laughs> they, they, they didn't mess around. So, so uh, that night we're lying in this tent. We're about to take off, you see, the next day for this area. And he's, he's lying across, been there 15 years. And incidentally, a, a doctor at that. So this is not a, an uncivilized, uneducated man. And he says, you know, he says, I can't, he says, there's no way for me to tell you. He says, I can't, he says, what this place does to you after a while. He says, you know, he says, I know, he says, I know. There are things out there that nobody has ever seen. He says, I know they're there. 
And he says, and I hear, I hear rumors. He says, for 15 years, rumors have persisted. He says, six of my friends dropped out there in one time or another, never came back. He's just lying there in that tent. You can hear the, the, the jungle insects all around us screaming. And the, the river is flowing on by down below us, filled with gigantic anacondas. And he's, he's lying in his bunk, and there was a strange moment there. And I said, well, what do you think is out there? He says, that's the point. I don't know. He says, if you knew what was out there, then you'd say, well, that's out there. Nobody's seen it yet. He says, you know that there have been rumors persisting out here as long as he's been there, that there are actually prehistoric animals still living out in that vast wilderness out there? You know, by prehistoric, I'm talking about prehistoric animals, the great, the great lizards and the great cats. I said, you really believe that? Because, you know, here, I'm a man from Henry. I said, you really believe that? He says, I'm not even going to talk about it to you anymore. He said, I don't know what I believe anymore. He says, just every day I go up and I hope I come back. That's all. And so the next day, we're just flying high. And this guy's a very silent type from Texas. And we're flying at 8,000 feet off over this incredible area. And uh, below us, this, this beautiful undulating carpet of absolutely unbroken green. And he says, you know, there's many, many miles of this country here where the sun has not even touched the ground. It's just almost all great swampland. I says, well, what if we go down? I kept asking him that. So while he says, uh, says, head for the river. That's all we can do. He said, I'll try to make one of the rivers. And so the little plane just kept grinding on and on. And then suddenly off to our left, I remember this, this huge thunderstorm broke. And we could see it just crashing down. Great thunderstorm. It must have been two or three or four miles around, but pitch black. It looked like an enormous, uh, overblown, tremendously magnified tornado. But it was a giant thunderstorm hitting down on one part of the jungle. And then another one popped up off to our right. You could see them like trees over the jungle. And over us, the sun was still shining. You know, we're almost on the equator. And outside, the, the temperature is in the 90s, up in the 100s. And down on the ground, the, the humidity, 150 degrees, 150%. And we're wending our way in between these, these enormous uh, uh, thunderstorms, which any one of by the way, any one of which would have torn that little airplane apart like confetti. And so we're winding our way in and out, in and out of these things. And he's, he's, he's looking at the chart. All he had was a chart with nothing but, but whiteness on it because this is on uncharted country and, and just a few rivers drawn. We're, we're, we're keeping that river off to our left in sight. Always as long as you can see the river, you're safe. And down below, God knows what. <laughs> I mean, I mean God knows what. I don't mean the National Geographic knows what. I mean, <laughs> God knows what. And so, so I, I, I came back, you know, for 20 weeks afterwards to, to kind of get my head back in gear to believe that I understood everything in the world. You know, I had it, had it all nicely uh, categorized. I don't know. I don't know. And somehow it's connected with Alfred. Yeah, it's connected with Alfred Packard. Sure. That the, that, the, that the tiny, thin veneer that exists over all of us 
the hip and the unhip, the square, the unsquare, the right and the left. It doesn't matter what ism. That thin veneer of uh, humanity, what we call humanity, that's gently been applied to us over the centuries, is so thin. It's, it's thinner than the thinnest playa film. And underneath it all is, is a great unknown, gigantic, totally tangled, stygian black jungle. And that's the true human, the true animal. It's underneath us all. We buzzed along quietly 8,000 feet. He didn't say much. We just kept looking down at that little glint of green river water amid that vast carpet. WOR New York, you stay tuned for Lester Smith and the News. This is the news in detail on the hour from the WOR Newsroom. North Vietnam's forces are again out to capture on luck the South Vietnamese provincial capital city only 60 miles from Saigon. Attacks began tonight from four directions as North Vietnamese troops and tanks resumed their siege of An Lok. Allied forces replied with airstrikes against the North Vietnamese. From mainland China's news agency today came China's first broadcast reaction to President Nixon's move to stop the North Vietnamese invasion into the South. The broadcast by the new China news agency declared... As long as the United States' imperialist war of aggression against Vietnam and Indochina continues in any form, we shall firmly support the Vietnamese and other Indochinese peoples to carry their war of resistance to the end and to final victory. The Chinese Communists called the President's order to mine North Vietnamese harbors a grave act of war escalation. The President's prime attempt to stop the current North Vietnamese offensive begins within the next few hours. And in Washington, W.R.'s Clifford Evans has this report on how the administration is awaiting the news. At 6 o'clock tomorrow morning, the mines in the harbor of Haiphong will be activated. Meanwhile, President Nixon is staying close to the White House. Very few appointments. Basically, he is meeting with his close...